If you know where to look on social media, and I do, you'll find a whole underground system of former Berean kids. Whispering, gossiping, trading stories, old secrets, and support. Comments like BCA equals joke, hated my life there, or that school was hell on wheels are as common as they are troubling. When one woman wrote, I now tell my mom about things that went on there, and she is horrified. Her friend responded, Karma's a bitch. Remember that. But on more public internet arenas, the briefest glance at online reviews belies hardly one hint of all you've already learned and have yet to learn about Milford Christian Academy. While there are the three or four gripes from former students I've already told you about, you'd never have the faintest clue of all these children have suffered, of all the anger they harbor, if you limit yourself to the words of Milford Christian parents, both past and present. They glow with praise like, couldn't ask for more, and thankful, thankful, thankful for the wonderful men and women of God that lead here with excellence, integrity, and love. One woman writes that the teachers and administrators go above and beyond their responsibilities to see that each child has what they need to fulfill their God-given potential in a very loving and nurturing environment. This theme of Pastor Loomer and his leaders being the be-all, end-all of Christian leadership and love repeats throughout, with parents rejecting the negative reviews as very misleading for future families. Almost immediately, one mom types, I felt an overwhelming sense of peace upon entering the school. The teachers and Pastor Loomer are great examples and leaders for these children. It's a giant, loving family. Please, families who are interested in this school, do your own research. Don't be misled by these other reviews. You won't be let down. The message is simple and clear. Consider Milford Christian Academy, another mother extols where they care for your child's spiritual, mental, and physical well-being. You already know a good deal about the spiritual and mental well-being of students at Berean, so let's turn for this chapter to the physical. In the midst of the glowing praise for Berean, the words of one mother who took a short-lived tour burns like a fiery red flag. I was immediately turned off, the woman writes, by the inappropriate physical discipline that they use at this school. I was speaking to a woman who uses a paddle in her office on students. I was appalled when I was told this, and I got up with my child and left the office right away. The state of Connecticut banned corporal punishment in public schools in 1989, the year after Doreen disappeared. However, it still allows a teacher to use reasonable force to protect herself or others from immediate physical injury to obtain possession of a dangerous instrument or controlled substance, to protect property from physical damage, or to restrain a minor or remove that minor to another area to maintain order. Private and religious schools like Berean, however, are exempt from any restrictions on physically punishing a child. Chapter 13, verse 24 of the Book of Proverbs tells us that he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chastiseth him betimes. Withhold not correction from the child, reads Proverbs chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. For if thou beateth him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Paddling at Milford Christian originated under original headmaster Ron Kirk. It was like hell on earth. 
Yeah. It really was. You know, when we had Pastor Skellen there, there was order in the church. Everybody was lovable and everything. Then they, when we got this Pastor Jim, yeah, he hired this Mr. Kirk from California to become the principal, and they were under the paddle system. Quite conscious of the modern world's resistance to corporal punishment in schools, as well as the loophole provided by Connecticut law, Kirk devised what he called a specific chastening policy. In many, many corners, Kirk wrote, a humanistic condemnation to the biblical injunctions for corporal correction of children has led to a great confusion and concern over such a practice. In light of real abuse caused by the absence of biblical correction, such confusion and concern is plausible. Therefore, Milford Christian Academy offers this policy to attempt to document and define a sound, wholesome treatment of corporal correction. In a school that aspires to godly and wholesome standards, Milford Christian Academy seeks to be a ministry. We seek, like Jesus, to meet people where they are, then to help them along to where they ought to be. Just so, Jesus takes the humble and babes to confound the worldly wise. This policy follows a standard for corporal correction, which has been adopted by the Association of Christian Schools International, based upon certain legal principles, which protect both the student and the school in these litigious times. Done with the legal mumbo-jumbo, the handbook notes that we are, quote, thus brought to the issue of discipline. For the very reason that the child's character is not yet formed, we must, as parents, be disciplined for him. Every worthwhile activity demands preparation. Christian life demands comprehensive training of the attitudes, habits, and manners. Discipline is a general term of learning, denoting practice under the proper level of government. Children are instructed, shown, and helped to do what they are supposed to do. The Christian parent necessarily asks more of his child to more thoroughly prepare him for life. This training is very detailed and is directed toward the many specific traits of character needed for the whole person. The word and experience tells us that the results will be glorious and full of joy manifested in the character for Christian liberty. But when at any time the sin nature gets the better of the child, when he chooses his way instead of God's way, difficult though God's way may be, the child needs to be corrected. As for Susan Martin, it goes without saying that she is a big fan of sparing no rods and spoiling no children. In Susan Martin's world, the sin nature always gets the better of the child. In Susan Martin's world, her way is God's way. I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Sticky Beak, Season 3, Episode 9, Padea. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk. According to Ron Kirk and Susan Martin after him, scriptures give us three basic approaches to correction. The first is instruction. When instruction and meditation upon that instruction fail to establish or restore a godly course, 
The next step is a verbal rebuke. Inspired by the Latin word epitomeo, meaning to charge with fault to excite a sense of guilt. Often, the handbook reads, this is sufficient assistance in bringing repentance and a course of change. But we find that, at times, some young people do not respond to verbal reproof and gentle reminders. When a gentle but firm rebuke does not do its effective work, in the heart and outwardly in action, even for the small things being trained, chastisement, or spanking, is the next resort. Practically speaking, we have found that usually little chastisement is necessary. We teach Christian self-government. As a result, children understand their part in a happy and successful classroom. Most children cheerfully work hard at their subjects and at proper deportment so that gentle reminders are all that are usually necessary to correct classroom problems. When discipline is first trained in the heart, children will love to do right. Therefore, we find that they love school. Just as Milford Christian extolled parents to protect their kids from Pokemon and explode the Santa myth, it recruited them, enlisted them, to fully support its embrace of corporal punishment. Corporal correction is the policy of the school, the handbook reads, so that we may help children who need greater assistance. By enrolling their child, parents agree to its practice. For the most part, we trust that parents will be diligent to correct character flaws as they arise in the course of learning so that little will be required at school. Moms and dads, the handbook continues, must understand the limited resources available for the massive job of forming a child's character. Without the parents assuming the primary responsibility for correction of a child in need of it, the only recourse for the school is expulsion. The success of the child's education largely depends on the home's consistent and detailed commitment to character training. To that end, Milford Christian asked parents to come to the school as soon as possible after each offense, to correct it themselves with a swift paddle to the ass. Otherwise, as Ron Kirk cited Exodus in the original handbook, teachers were asked to make bricks without straw. There was, however, an out. In order to accomplish the family's and the school's education goals for the child who has more pointed and critical character training needs, reads the handbook, we may find that we need both a closer partnership between the home and school and a degree more freedom in the school to correct the child. Therefore, the school may request parents to sign a special request form to request and to grant MCA staff permission beyond the ordinary correction policy, a. the authority to correct a child corporally without advance notice, and b. the authority to correct a child without a parent present. These measures, the handbook tells us, will allow the more direct and quick correction needed for the special areas of character training which ordinary measures have failed to correct. If parents chose this route, and almost all did, Milford Christian was supposed to give them a call when their children were disciplined. Bullshit, one woman wrote me. There was never any calling our parents. They never gave us a chance. While some moms were more than happy to have their daughter beat at school, for a weekend game of birthday spin the bottle, others were caught unaware. I know that Mrs. Martin did not like me, one mother texted. I had a problem with her hitting my child, and when I told her nobody would hit my son except for myself, she was not happy. There was a form that as parents we were all supposed to sign, and honestly, I didn't look through all the paperwork that she wanted us to sign very well. I don't think I even realized that I might have signed it, 
but Susan showed me a paper after she swatted my son and told me I had signed it, but it was never produced or shown to me. It was at that point that I said, absolutely do not hit him ever again. Because I would not allow her to paddle him, she instead had him clean the friggin' bathrooms and other parts of the school as his punishment. Reading the handbook, you'd think the leaders of Milford Christian were loath to paddle any kid, that it was a rare occurrence. Correction must consider the dignity of the child as created in God's image, the document reads. Spanking should, quote, be seen as a positive good for good children, not retaliation against bad children, and was to be administered solely for the good of the child in two limited situations. The first occurred when the child displayed, quote, overt misconduct, such as, but not limited to, lying, cheating, fighting, damaging property, or insubordination. The second instance where paddling was appropriate arose when a kid demonstrated, quote, habitual, repeated, or willful misconduct, for which ordinary verbal instruction and rebuke have been ineffective in assisting the child to grow in character or accomplishment. Passive behavior, the handbook noted, might also fall under this category. Each time, corporal punishment was only to be effective if, per Matthew 18.15, two or three witnesses confirmed the bad acts, and if no such proof existed, the child was to be given the benefit of the doubt. Bullshit, a source told me bluntly. Susan beat us when she felt like it. Said another, you got paddled if you showed signs of being anything but perfect. Oh, it was like a decision that was made. You were sent to the office, and you had to tell them what you did, and they decided if it was worthy of getting a slot, and it always, it always was. <laughs> Paddlings came like thunderclaps without the benefit of lightning as a warning. Then there were just a lot of instances where they used paddling kind of as a weapon. They didn't use it as a way to correct you or make you a better person. They literally used it as a weapon of, you better do this or you're going to get paddled or you better not do this or you're going to get paddled. And there were so many instances where I got paddled for the stupidest stuff. You've heard nose-picking, the wrong color pen, and writing in print were punishable by paddle. So was gum-chewing, but on this issue, Susan made exceptions for one of her pets. He would chew gum, and she would look flirtily into his mouth, a source recalled, and then he wouldn't get paddled. The list of offenses grew, bordering on the ridiculous. Here's Ron Kirk Jr., senior son. I remember getting spanked by uh, another teacher, uh, Mrs for <laughs> so she pulled me out of the classroom right right outside the trailer and accuses me of laughing at her son trying to read right because i think you know, he was probably stuttering over some words and and i'm just like what no you know I, I was just like very confused right it was very quick and the sudden i don't know what's going on and and she's like you were you were laughing at him you know and she just like spanked me right there with her hands, or did she I'm have a paddle? Sure. Uh, I don't know for sure. Okay. Maybe it wasn't right there, but I remember getting spanked for it at some point. And my best guess is I couldn't breathe through my nose until I was, like, in my 20s. Okay. So I'm pretty sure I just, like, you know, was, like, snorting through my nose or something, <laughs> trying to breathe. And, like, 
she thought I was, you know, snort laughing at him. And oh my god, yeah, right. Being the principal's kid is kind of weird because it's like you're kind of protected in some ways, but kind of a target in a lot of other ways. Okay. So. <laughs> While curiosity certainly didn't kill the cat, it sure earned the cat a swat. One time, me and my friend were like, "I wonder what they do." Like, let's go, let's go, like, check it out. And so we went to go uh, see what happened when someone got paddled. Mm-hmm. Someone told on us, and so I got paddled. Freaking Eric told on me. The spy texted me. Mrs. Martin came down the stairs of the church, saw me, and pointed her finger at me, like straight arm, and her finger joints, like, overextend. It was scary. She came for me. Here's Andrew. I got paddled all throughout the years. And I can tell you that I really cannot sit here and remember any instance where I actually deserved getting paddled. I'm trying to remember, but I really can't. I got paddled one time, I think it was second grade, maybe third grade, where I drew a smiley face on my pinky because with my disability... I have a missing pinky, so it's like a little stump. And it was recess. It wasn't even, school wasn't even going. And I was drawing a smiley face on my pinky when Mrs. Martin walked in. And she immediately grabbed my hand, which my arms were very fragile. I mean, they still are, but being a kid, you know, they're smaller and more fragile. And she grabbed my arm and yanked it up and looked at the smiley face that I had on my pinky and yanked me out of my seat and dragged me through the class, out the door and to the office and told everyone, like the principal and whoever was in there with him, that I had uh, defiled my skin that I ruined the temple, which is your body, that I was drawing on myself and not paying attention, which I want to know what I was supposed to be paying attention to because it was recess, and I got paddled for it. Paddlings weren't just ridiculous. They were also cruel. They spotted a handicapped girl for going and looking at a snapping turtle with a group of us. I mean, we all got beat, but, like, this girl was fucking handicapped. There's, like, some wetlands and woods and some cabbage and all the kids were, you know, tracing through, finding stuff, getting in trouble for it. (laughs) So were you supposed Um, to be somewhere else? Is that what the infraction was? I think when the snapping turtle incident, I think we were supposed to be in gym class. We were supposed to be doing like calisthenics in gym class. And instead we were off, fucking off in a stream. Yeah. Yeah, we all got beat for it. And I remember that time we... They all they put all of us into the nursery, like the church nursery, and they took each one of us out one by one and like made us all wait there <laughs> knowing our fate as each one of us got taken out to get beat. And how old were you? I I couldn't have been more than eight. While paddling had existed under Ronald Kirk Sr., it took on a new life with Susan Martin. They didn't put a lot of emphasis on the paddling, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They made it seem like, well, only if it's necessary kind of stuff. 
Well, it seemed like every day it was necessary, according to Mrs. Martin. That's not a euphemism, despite Berean's claim that passing the paddle to its staff would serve to make needed corrections while minimizing disruption to the classroom or home. Every couple hours, there's someone in there who's paddling. Like, is somebody really, like, deserving to be beat? What are they doing? So she was doing it, sounds like, at least once a day. Oh, my God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Adding paddling to her to-do list, along with shopping trips for laptops and pastries, Susan was rarely in the classroom. And it sounds like you guys were alone a lot because you said that when... Susan yeah. would leave the room to discipline. She would just leave you guys alone. Yeah, she would leave, or and she would spy. She would also leave to go spy. So for disciplining, she would just take the child like out into the church building, so across the parking lot into the church building. So she'd be gone for like you know fifteen minutes. I was struck as I learned how common paddling was. One woman recalled getting swatted alongside her friend every day for two weeks straight. I didn't really question anything because it was all so normal there, she wrote. That stuff was always going on. Another told me she was hardly beaten at all in comparison with her classmates. Only like once a month, she told me. That's a lot, I told her. See, she said, I didn't know. Growing up, my mother beat me at home all the time, so I never knew the difference. There were rules to paddling, but only on paper. The handbook promised it would occur only under controlled conditions. Ignoring that time, Susan unlocked a bathroom door to pull a kindergartner out from behind the toilet and paddle him over the sink. Recognizing that some behavioral issues might stem from special needs, the handbook encouraged parents to withdraw such students. But in practice, children struggles with issues like autism, or ADHD or learning disabilities were ignored. And they were just completely skipped over because mental health wasn't wasn't a real issue. It was if yeah. there was anything wrong with you, it was a demonic issue. It wasn't mental health, it was a demon. Yes. That needed to be cast out beaten out. Each paddling had to have one adult witness. If the witness objected to the beating, they kept it to themselves. There is no saying no to discipline okay to them it is training up a child in a way that they should go so that when they are old they may not depart from it they are doing god's work (laughs) the 2000 handbook only allowed female staff to beat female students but by 2008 susan had changed this to require only that a woman need witness a girl's beating not even like getting paddled by susan like i remember a couple times I think she wasn't there one day or something, but for whatever reason, I got paddled by Jim, like behind closed doors, like full on bending me over the desk and paddling my ass. Like that is not now or ever appropriate, in my opinion. I heard that more than once, as if once wasn't enough. A sick guideline that they kept was that if it was a man, it had to be spanking a young girl that a woman would have to be present. But it wasn't even held to because Jim Loomer beat me alone. Susan chucked the rules out the window like the tiny little Christmas tree she detested. Officially, SWATs were limited to three per offense. Mm -hmm. And I know they were supposed to be limited to three, and I know that rule went out the door because what I hear about Susan was that she enjoyed it and that she was vicious. She was. She was mean. 
she was mean about it. I remember getting paddled by her a couple times. I mean, three a day. You, I, you know, I was lucky if I got a minimum of three at once. That's what I, no, no, it was supposed to be, I think you're supposed to be limited per paddling session to three. Oh, I thought you meant three a day. I, I remember getting hit at least three times. Little kids were supposed to be spared, but the kindergarten nose picker knows that's not true. So does Andrew, beaten at a very young age for looking at turtles, for playing tag, for defiling his temple with a smiley face. And they had rules like, I think, second grade and under only got like one swat, whereas I think third grade and up to like fifth grade got like two swats. And I think like fifth grade and up got three swats. And they were only supposed to hit like a normal spanking. And it didn't matter what grade you were in. They smacked you at least three to five times very hard. And if you flinched, like if you tightened your butt cheeks, they'd literally add another swat. Or if you put your hand in the way, they would add another swat or they would hit your hand. They would tell you the longer you wait, the harder it's going to get. And it was just really screwed up. And then there was the sting. Chastisement, wrote Susan and Ronald Kirk before her, meant training in righteousness, straightening up, based on the Greek word pideia. Pideia, according to Wikipedia, means the rearing and education of the ideal member of the ancient Greek polis, or state. But Milford Christian looks to the book of Proverbs, Hebrews, and Ephesians to define pideia as, quote, nurture from a strike or a sting. Parents and teachers, the handbook noted, would be instructed in the use of a paddle to produce, quote, an effective sting without injury. The use of little Emily Martin as a prop in these demonstrations is not noted. But as little as Milford Christian's paddlings were about correction, they were even less about nurture. And the trouble with the whole thing, even parents complained to Pastor Jim and to Mr. Cook. And you know what? It was like it went right over their heads. And their thing was, well, you know, you signed that, you know, your child could be spanked if they were misbehaving. But, you know, spanking and beating are two different things. Right. And in my, in my estimation, a spanking is when you take a child and you give them a couple whacks on the ass with your hand. Mm-hmm. Or even if it's with a paddle. But you don't you don't put force in it. You don't hurt the kid to the point where, you know, they're welts or something. That's not right. Milford Christian's paddling, specifically Susan Martin's, was about pain. And they would hit so hard that, like, I would actually lose my balance. And it felt like a fiery sting. Like, it felt like it was, like, cutting or stinging your skin. It wasn't like a normal spanking. As far as I knew, these former Berean kids hadn't read the handbook, now or ever. But in speaking with me, they used the word sting again and again. And she's doing it hard. Yeah, like to hurt you. I remember like feeling the sting a couple hours later. A couple hours later. (laughs) It's crazy. I don't know how somebody can like, can not like get off on doing that. Is that what you think she was doing? I mean, she loved it, I feel like. She was like, every couple hours there was someone in there, she was paddling. Like, is somebody really, like, deserving to be beat? I heard that repeatedly, too. 
that Susan loved swatting kids. Okay, so when the paddling, because I hear that her, she was really into the paddling. Like she was, and she took pleasure in it. Susan also took pride in her paddling, bragging, it's all in the flick of the wrist. Kids did anything and everything to try to avoid the sting, including books in their pants and doubling up on gym clothes or drawers. I also remember one story about a kid who um, he would get paddled so often he started wearing multiple pairs of underwear, oh. and they realized it and made him take his pants down. The handbook forbade handling or shaking a child while correcting them. And while I heard nothing about Susan laying actual hands on children, that never meant she kept her cool. You know, they would sign a uh, thing saying they would allow them to be paddled. Right. But they got out of hand. Mrs. Martin, honestly, when she spanked the kids, you could hear it across the hall. They oh would scream, God. and she'd still hit them. And while the handbook also prohibited a raised voice or other expressions of anger while swatting a kid, the alternative might have been even more terrifying. She loved building up the tension, building up the uncomfort level before actually doing anything. And she would make you bend over the desk or the table or the chair, whatever you were going to get spanked on. And she would just wait. She would make you just stand there and wait. And she wouldn't say anything. She would just be behind you with the paddle. And... Sometimes she would actually rub your butt with it, with the paddle. I remember that. She'd rub your butt with it and then smack. And other times she wouldn't say a word. She wouldn't rub your butt to let you know it was coming or anything. She'd just start pounding you with it. While certain limited humiliation is inherent in the principle of correction, the handbook warned, purposeful public humiliation should not be considered a part of biblical correction. But even when Susan wasn't paddling you herself, she made it a point to watch. For some reason, Mrs. Martin was like, they put her in charge, the most violent, evil woman there. They put her in charge. She kind of put herself in charge, though, if you ask me. She's the one who, like, made a point to be there for every paddling and... They kind of just like let her do it after that. After each paddling, teachers were to comfort and pray with the student to assure them it was their conduct that was being corrected and that God loved and accepted them unconditionally. Teachers were also supposed to allow kids to compose themselves before returning to their classrooms. Reading this, I thought back to the teacher whispering to Andrew to cry so that Mrs. Martin would believe he'd gotten his due. Here's Ron Kirk Jr. I get the sense he wasn't paddling before your father left, or they weren't paddling. Oh, no, they were. They were, they were. okay. Yeah, I, I was spanked by Susan um, at least once. The, the one I remember is, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure my mom was in the room too, but that Susan was spanking me. And it was a, you know, like, oh, you're not crying yet? Okay, well then we'll, we'll keep going. Right. Obviously, if you're, if you're not crying, I'm not hitting you hard enough. And it's, you know, doesn't hurt enough to make you repent kind of thing. Did she say that to you? Yeah. Ron Jr. also recalled Emily Martin telling him that, for her personally, her mother had mixed it up. Sometimes, he wrote, Susan would stop when she started crying, sometimes when she stopped crying. 
Finally, there were the paddles themselves. I just know the paddles that they used were made of wood and it wasn't like the little cutting board looking ones that you saw or that you see at the store. It was like, kind of looked more like an oar to a boat, but not as wide. And it kind of came to a little point. It was almost like egg shaped. Some paddles were personalized in a way that took me longer to grasp than I care to admit. She didn't only have the paddle with her initials on it. Um, she had matching paddles with an attitude adjuster on them. With a what on them? Attitude adjuster. What's that? Like carved into it. It said attitude oh. adjuster. While only half of this was true, it was another mom, not Mrs. Martin, whose paddle bore the words attitude adjuster. Susan's paddle did bear the letters SM. In a photo I've seen of the paddle, it's long and looks heavy, and the initials aren't just carved, they are emblazoned. I posted the photo on the Sticky Beaks Facebook page, and the mom whose son had been forced to clean the bathroom shuddered. I've seen that paddle in person, she told me, and it's even worse. Not bad enough for Susan, apparently, who made pointed suggestions about its improvement as she stared directly at children in line for a paddling. I actually heard Mrs. Martin say one time, she goes, we should actually drill holes in these. That way the air doesn't catch on it so much and you hit them faster and harder. And I'm thinking to myself, these already hurt to the point where you don't want to sit for the next hour and now she wants to, like, drill holes in them so that you could swing it faster? Some former students laughed at the rumor that the school advertised personalized paddles for parents to buy. But Ron Kirk Jr.'s family had one. From my friend's stories, their parents did drill holes in some of them, he texted me. Got less air resistance and that incoming whistle noise. More rumors about the paddles flew. I don't know if it was just rumor or if it was actually something that happened. But I, I'm guessing it was a rumor, but I wouldn't honestly put it past them. But after Mrs. Martin became like the head disciplinarian person, there were rumors around that she handmade the paddles herself. Last February, when Mark got busted in the Milford Christian parking lot, the cops who tracked him to Jim's house granted temporary possession of Mark's Honda CRV to a sweet old lady who scooted around in a wheelchair and showered them with God bless yous. Still in shock, Mark was in custody and having no idea where Doreen's story was taking me. I'd titled the first episode of my unexpected third season, Asking the Lord What's Next. The title was stolen from a message Mark sent to his son Paul after stealing Paul's gun. How was I to know that what was next? were endless horror stories of children beaten for the most infinitesimal of mistakes, for partaking in the simplest pleasures of childhood. I felt hollowed out, and on top of it all, I was struggling to keep track of an ocean of information. Timelines, names, relationships, that kept cresting into larger and larger waves. One name, of course, stood out from the beginning. Susan Martin's like one of like these big, big players at Berean, and she ended up being like the head, um, what do they call it? It's not principal, they say a different word for it. Headmaster? Headmaster, yeah, headmaster, headmaster, something like that, yeah. So she ended up being like basically the principal, and that happened after I left school. But she was my teacher and she would boss 
everybody around, like all the other teachers around, too. Right. She wanted to be the disciplined person, the boss, everybody. And, like, as I, you know, messaged you, she's, like, just like Aunt Lydia mm-hmm. in the handmaid's tale. I was, like, every time I'd watch it, I'm like, oh, that's Mrs. Martin to my husband. Sure, Susan sounded like quite the piece of work. And as much as I felt driven to do something for these haunted people, they were looking to me to help them expose an entire church. This was out of my wheelhouse, and I felt exhausted. And what, I asked myself, does all this have to do with Doreen? One night, as I poured these stories and my frustrations out to Joe, a neon red light bulb went off in his head. The students get paddled, he asked, like with an actual wooden paddle. He reminded me of what Mark said happened right before Doreen went missing, that he had paddled her until she screamed. To us, the idea of a paddle had seemed so old school, so old-fashioned. Did David Vinson get paddled, Joe asked? I wasn't sure, and I tried to do the math in my head. Susan Martin had shown up with her initial emblazoned oar sometime in the very early 90s, just a few years after Doreen was gone, and a year or two before David Vincent was born. Both Mark and Susan were in tight with Pastor Jim. There had to be something there, right? So I just kept digging, trying to wrap my arms around Susan, and that's when I first learned of her daughter, Emily. Could Emily be friend or foe, I wondered. Some light detective work? Okay, Facebook stalking. Revealed a lot the starkest being Emily's lack of warm feelings for her mother's house of worship. Super cool having a convicted child molester preaching at your church, she'd written in a post about a month before Mark was arrested. Standards are just immaculate. Clues as to how she felt about her mother were less obvious, but they were there, starting with the total absence of Susan from any of Emily's photos. One photo featured Emily herself, with deep dimples and aviator sunglasses, sitting with her brothers. A few things caught my eye. Blonde hair shaved up the sides, low-cut tank top, a ton of tattoos. Emily Martin certainly didn't look the part of Susan Martin's daughter. But more interestingly, it seems she was thumbing her nose directly at her mother. I'm blessed beyond measure, she captioned the picture, having these men as my brothers. These Martin kids turned out all right, if I do say so myself. Thanks, Dad. What seemed like a slap right at Susan surprised me, because Susan was terrifying. She just said it, out loud, I wrote to that first intrepid source. Won't Susan be mad? I'm getting the feeling they don't talk, the woman responded. I wonder if she would talk to you. The urge to cold call Emily Martin was strong, but lobbing a bomb into her lap without warning didn't feel right. So I kept digging, trying to stay on top of that ever-cresting wave. And when my Facebook messenger dinged for what seemed like the millionth time, with a name that was obviously a pseudonym, I read the message hastily. This newest source had grown up at Milford Christian Church and attended their school, she put this word in quotation marks, from 1995 to 2008. She had known the Vincent, she said, and had vivid memories of Mark and David. I was very much woven into the fabric of that place for a very long time, she wrote, and I am invested in anything that tries in any small way to ruin any of them. So please, if you'd like to pick my brain at all, I'm always free to talk shit about MCC. Absolutely. Great, I typed quickly, adding her to the list in my head. 
Let's set up a time to talk. It was only when this woman kept writing that I suddenly realized who I was speaking with. My biological mother, she continued, lives at that church to this day. We are estranged for probably obvious reasons. She was head disciplinarian. She had a wooden paddle with her initials carved into it. Wait, I typed furiously. Your mother is Susan Martin? The response, comprised of just three letters, was immediate. Yep. And there was more. Everyone who attended that school, Emily Martin continued, was abused. Maybe not sexually, but every child was physically abused under the guise of discipline. And I was molested there from the age of 10 to 12, and it was all pushed under the rug. I'll shout it from the rooftops. I got on the phone immediately. Okay, so you're Emily Martin, and you went to <laughs> you went to Milford Christian from you said '95, right? Uh, yeah, I believe it, I from kindergarten until I graduated what they would call high school from 1995 to 2008, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I was a, a student there, and my mother Susan was um, the head disciplinarian. Susan had been introduced to the church in the early 90s. Emily told me when she herself was barely a year old. Susan's status as a regular churchgoer slowly and steadily gave way to something more. She began teaching, which, as Emily reminded me, she was not qualified to do. And within a few years, she was helping run the place. If you were in need of a... I don't even know what to call it. Like a correction? a swat. Okay. You were beat on the bottom with a wooden paddle. Mm-hmm. They would say that there was a maximum of three, but, you know, friends and family could get a little extra. <laughs> Her title was dodgy, but she was the one that beat the kids. It was Emily who told me about the apartment in the basement of Little Eagle's daycare, next to the church, where Susan lived alone. Being alone didn't matter, though as long as she had her favorite guy. To my understanding, she has no one outside the church okay. at this point. And she's extremely close to Jim Loomer. Uh, yeah, to the point where she and I haven't had a little conversation in, I don't know, since 2008. Okay. Um, and I ended up needing to text her for reasons last year. And... Um, I could tell that Jim was responding. Jim was texting me back. It wasn't Susan, it was Jim. And I know in my heart of heart that that's what's happening. How can you you tell that? Um, Susan will fight back every time. Okay. She's incapable of not fighting back if she's challenged. And Jim does this manipulative, finds a middle ground where we have something in common and ignore everything else. Okay. That's Jim's M.O. I asked Emily about that text message she'd mentioned, the one she sent to her mother last summer for, as she says, reasons. She paused, trying to capture what she'd written, then suddenly said, well, shit, I think I still have it right here. This is the absolute last time you'll ever be hearing from me, but make no mistake. I've wanted little more in this life than for you to be wiped clean from the face of the earth and from our memories. This is the absolute last time you'll ever be hearing from me. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And I'm resolved to be indifferent where you're concerned. You will not cross my mind. 
I will not mourn the mother I wish I'd had. You will not live rent-free in my head. You've caused enough pain for a thousand lifetimes, and I hope you wallow in it. And that was the last thing I ever said to her. Any response? Nope. Is that better? Is that better that there's no response? Probably. Emily and I spoke for what felt like hours, and we kept on speaking, day after day after day. She recently moved out of state from Connecticut, and this past summer, when she was back visiting friends and family, she visited me too. She arrived on her Harley, and we took to my backyard to eat pizza and fall all over each other trying to unpack what was in our heads. This woman was whip-smart, warm, and hilarious, a revelation, a burning light her mother had failed to snuff out. She was a woman who had survived hard things with dignity. As my children played around us, we kept our voices low as a lot of our talk focused on those hard things. The paddle with her initials on it, I mean, I think that's... That's a very scarring memory for a lot of kids over there. I'm sure it is. So who made her that? Did she make herself that paddle? I hate that I have to say it. It was my grandfather. My grandfather made all of them. Okay. Yeah. When you say all of them, you mean all of them? Every teacher had one. Every teacher. Okay. Mm -hmm. With their initials on them? No, no. She was special. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Was your grandfather active in the church and school too? No. No. He was active in our lives, never laid a hand to us. Okay. Okay. He was a, he, that's something that's hard to, to square up in, in my mind. Other times, the Susan stories were so ridiculous and bizarre that it was hard for us not to laugh. And while we laugh a lot, Emily always reminds me who we're dealing with. I want to apologize for laughing because I don't want no. anyone that she abused to think that I'm making light of their pain because I'm not. (laughs) I, my God, I know. I just, I don't want my laughter to be misinterpreted at all. The woman is a monster and there's no two ways about it. And I want to be very clear that I know that. (laughs) From the beginning, as we traced and untangled the threads that wove Doreen, Vincent, and Milford Christian together, Emily was clear on this. Her mother never liked Mark Vincent, or Kathy for that matter. Susan hated them, which, fair, Emily wrote, probably one of her only decent decisions. Susan had refused to let her children visit the Vincent home at all when they were young. I remember my friends going over there to swim and feeling left out, Emily said. I was too young to understand the nuance. But she had weird hard lines she'd draw around people to keep us safe. And I remember feeling like Mark was a bad man. So imagine my surprise when I got my hands on some information from Mark's confinement at Bridgeport Correctional Center. That's where he spent most of 2022 cooling his heels on that gun charge. Again, I couldn't get Emily on the phone fast enough. You're not going to fucking believe this, I pretty much yelled when she picked up. This was not the time for chit-chat. I have Mark's approved visitors list at the prison, and it's just two people. You're never going to guess. Well, obviously Loomer, she started slowly, and I impatiently waved her on. Of course, Loomer, keep guessing. Kathy Vincent, David Vincent, Paul Vincent, Sarah Vincent, Pastor Rick Welch. Emily ran down the list of usual suspects until she, too, was yelling. Holy shit, Jess, she shrieked into the phone. You're not telling me what I think you're telling me. Other sources were just as shocked by my guessing game. 
I assume Loomer and his lawyer, one source ventured, and I hadn't even replied yet when she continued, but if you're about to say Susan, I'm going to flip. Yes, I wrote back, lingering over every word because I could barely believe it myself. It's Susan fucking Martin. Susan Martin is on Mark Vincent's approved visitors list. What the fuck? The source responded. I'm losing my fucking mind right now. It's not his wife or his child. It's Susan fucking Martin. I'm reeling. I can't believe it. How the fuck did a detour into Susan get tied in so fucking well? You're either the luckiest journalist ever or you've got the best instincts ever. Late at night, I tap into my instincts and my luck. I sit and ponder what Jim, Susan, and Mark talk about when they're together. Hurried conversations whispered through a pane of COVID-safe glass in a cold gray visitor's room or over a computer's eerie glow. People whisper suspicions to me that Mark's legal defense was funded, at least partly, by donations not only from the church, but from Susan herself. Susan likes to make herself useful to the church and her compatriots. Like back in September 2012, when Alan Parody pled guilty to sexually assaulting a seven-year-old Berean boy, and she took the stand to vouch for his character at sentencing. Is it Mark's legal bills those three talk about? Or whether Mark needs money for commissary snacks? Does Susan provide Mark some sort of comfort, the nurture without the sting that she was never able to find it in her heart to grant to those dozens of defenseless children? And speaking of children, I wonder if they talk about their own kids, about Doreen and what really happened to her, about all the daughters and sons that Mark and Susan have lost. I wonder if Susan brings pastries, just like she did for Jim and Alan in the old days. And I'm not the only one. On November 9, 2022, Mark Hunter Vincent pled guilty in Milford District Court to illegal possession of the firearm he stole from his son Paul. The felony conviction was a direct callback to 1991, when he'd been carted off to prison for the gun he'd convinced Paul's mother Sharon to buy, the first time the Wallingford police had come sniffing. This time around, he was sentenced to six years in prison, three suspended, with an additional three in probation, which means he'll spend at least three years in prison. He was also fined $5,000. Where that chunk of change came from is a mystery. That night, Emily Martin broke her long-standing rule. She texted her mother. Three years is a long time to have to put money on Mark's books, she wrote to Susan. You gonna get a job so Mark can score some cigarettes and a honey bun? At Milford Christian Church, it's been years of people who claim to love the Lord, relying on fear and isolation and silence to conceal their crimes against children. Those days are over. These days, I tell you about things that went on there, and you are horrified. But karma's a bitch. Remember that. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk. Cheers.